Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I'm excited to have George Molecule. George, thanks for doing this. Hi, Jess. Pleasure to meet you. And I'm happy to be with you and spend some time with you. Well, um, you do a lot of interesting things. I'm looking forward to the show today. Can you give people a little bit of sense of, of uh, some of the things you do and how big the fund is and, and some of these things? Sure. So, you know, I'm based in the U.S. and we work on multiple areas, uh, including healthcare, artificial intelligence, um, uh, software, and uh, manufacturing industries right across the world in more than 35 countries. Um, so we have a fund that's about seven billion in size, and we look at investing in companies that have gone to a growth stage and looking to refinance themselves or they're in, in financial stress. We also got a startup zone, which we started post-COVID, where we are looking for startups who are looking to raise capital and grow their company. So we've got very uh, stringent criteria on how we look at startups, startups that are globally scalable because we are operating globally. So we're looking for startups who can who can uh, look at an African market, a Middle East market, an Asian market, a Latin American market, an East European market um, that are financially sustainable, global, and able to do it. So this is what we're looking at. That's interesting. You know, um, we have a lot of entrepreneurs uh, who are CEOs on the show, and we have a number of investment fund managers. Um, you know, one of the questions that it seems like is always fascinating to people is fundraising. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of investment fund managers that would love to get their fund to $7 billion. What kind of advice do you have for them? For fundraising uh, from, you know, those who are trying to raise funds, the, uh, there are a couple of things. You know? So one of the things that I learned early on is uh, when you're a startup, you have two choices. Either you focus on uh, profits or you focus on growth. You know, you can't do profits and growth at the same time. Okay. So... And I always tell them, listen, don't focus on the profits, focus on the growth. Because if you're focusing on profits, you're going to miss the learning that you're supposed to be getting. I can give you two clear examples here. Uh, if you look at 2008, we had MySpace and Facebook at the same time. They, the promoters of uh, MySpace was looking at profits. So they were saying, you know what, we need to have a clear business model and we are from the media sound and we'll, you know, look at advertising, converting this, you know, advertising revenue, look at profits and clear zone. What Facebook was still exploring and they didn't have a clear business model. I mean, there was no business model. I mean, you were just uh, coming up, you're setting it up, and uh, but investors were backing it up. And, uh, so the question was, you know, what was Facebook looking at? Facebook was only looking at one thing that was, number of users. They didn't try to do anything else. They just focused on number of users. So, and that is what happened. You know, 10 years later, you can see the difference, or 15 years later, you can see the difference between what's where Facebook and where MySpace is. And the same thing happened in, in you know, Yammer and Twitter. In 2008, Yammer was a rival tweeting, tweeting company, and Twitter was there. So Yammer had come up with, you know, a $1 fee, etc. So they were looking at monetizing early on, getting users on board, where tutors said, listen, I don't even know where this is going to go, but I'm just going to go and get the maximum number of users. So whereas when in 2010, Yammer had about 60,000 users, Twitter had reached more than a million, you know? And so today, where's Twitter, where's Yammer? I mean, nobody even knows there's a company known as Yammer that was there, you know, <laughs> about 15 years back. So... <laughs> Is the key here. The key for startups, for fund, when you're going for fundraising, is focus, focus, focus exclusively on growth. Okay. Uh, even look at WhatsApp. WhatsApp had no revenues. I mean, the guys who came up with WhatsApp had zero revenues. And they said, listen, we are not going to bugger our yeah, you know, customers with you know, ads and everything, free messaging system. It got sold for multi million dollars on Facebook. So the key is, Get customers, focus on customers, don't look at the profits. There's another company that I know where I know the promoter personally. And I know another promoter, both of them started the same. One of them was focused, at, this is in you know, software development and outsourcing industry. This thing. So in 2006, both of them started at the same time. 
one of them was focusing on you know how much the maximum profit that I can get for this particular customer, this particular market, and from this particular systems. Whereas the other one was saying that, listen, I don't care about the profits. Let me see if I can touch my first thousand customers. Okay. So whereas, you know, the company A was going after profits, it got about, you know, 15 to 20 customers in year two. This other gentleman was just saying that I just need to make 10% more just to sustain myself, but I don't care. I'm just going after things. He reached his, you know, 200th customer in two years' time. Today, the guy, the gentleman, you know, has gone to more than 8,000 customers. And he's a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Whereas the other company was focusing on 10, 20 customers. As of today, they have 50 customers. They're still profitable. He's still happy making a couple of million dollars. This guy is a multi-billion dollar fan. So when you look into it, there are two choices that are very clear. Growth, growth, growth. But at the same time, when you're trying to do this, the question is, you know, as a startup, again, you have a question is minimum viable product. Or do you have a minimum viable product? And I get into you know, this thing very often with startups. You know, we have about uh, 30 pitch decks coming to our website on a daily basis. You know, about more than 800 to 1,000 visitors. So we get a lot of uh, you know, startups across the world coming to us and you know, sending pitch decks and the driving traffic inside. So the big question everybody has is, you know, okay, now, you know, growth is one, but, you know, I don't even have a minimum viable product. So, you know, I, give me funding for just getting a minimum viable product. But that's a huge area, right? Because you could, is not getting the minimum viable product. Minimum viable product is only giving an assumption, validating your assumption that this is right or this is wrong. But if you're not solving the right problem, Irrespective of whether you get the minimum viable product right or wrong, you're just going to keep, you know, making changes to get the right problem. And, you know, that's nothing. Focus is you have to dive into the market. You know, you can't stay outside, do market research to a third-party firm, and, you know, ask them to say, what is this working, what's not working, and all that. You need to actually, you know, dive into the market, get into the market, listen for yourself, and, you know, see the feedback, get the feedback, and, now, I can keep talking just um, the one area that I was pretty impressed was, you know, Ratan Tata from India. He's a doyen of the Indian uh, industry. So he's, I mean, more than $100 billion of operations and uh, he's from Sauls to everything else. So Ratan Tata was taking over Jaguar Land Rover uh, from UK, okay? So Rasantara came up with a thousand dollar car, you know. I think yeah, one lakh car. That's like two thousand dollars at that time. So two thousand dollars, yeah. Was that was that the Tata Nano? Yeah, that's the Tata. Yeah. So he was taking over the Tata Nano. He came up with the Tata Nano, right? And then Ford wanted to leave Jaguar Land Rover out. So Ford said. Um, you know, JLR is running into a billion-dollar loss for us, and you know, I want to buy her. So Russian Tata went and said, "Listen, I take over the company." Now, when Russian Tata and his, uh, his chief of, uh, you know, managing director of the Tata Motors, uh, Ravi Khan, they went to meet uh, JLR. The senior leadership was, you know, mocking them, saying that, "Guys, you are running a small Tata." nano car that's two thousand dollars i would land rovers are selling for forty fifty thousand dollars you know sixty thousand eighty thousand dollars how the hell do you think you can come and manage this operation here hey i mean there has to be some sense why did you guys buy this company so the reason i'm saying is you know you have to get into the market right i mean this is where rasan tata did this so he and rami khan they both came to the U.S. They went dealer to dealer visiting. I mean, this is a gentleman who's running a $100 billion enterprise. Where does he have time to go in for dealer to dealer visit? You know, can you imagine? But he took the time, went to dealer to dealer to dealer and asked them, why is it that you guys are running on a loss? Why is it that, you know, what changes you want? What is it that you're hearing from your customer? 
And they were telling, listen, we're looking for new designs. We're looking for aerodynamic models. And, but you know, the staff in the JLR UK headquarters, they're not listening. So Ratanada came back and said, you know, we're going to buy this company. And they made the provisions to go buy this loss-making company, making a billion dollar losses. And in one year, in one year, he turned it around to a billion dollar profits. Okay. And how did he do it? So what he first did was he fired the entire senior management. He fired everybody. He said, you guys have no clue what you guys are doing. He got the second rung and third rung leadership and told them, listen, you guys are coming with so many ideas of new designs and everything. This is my feedback. Go ahead and make those changes. Okay. So he got people who believed that change was possible. Experienced people, gave them the depth of the market information and said, go for it. And the whole thing changed around. And then, you know, before that, the monthly cash flow was you know, done every, every month, you know. So cash flow was done. Ford looked at it and said, oh, great, you know, okay, we're running into another $200 million down. Okay, finally, you know. We... Whereas when he took over, he said, you know what? Cash flows are monitored daily. We are not going to do it monthly. Every day, we are going to monitor the cash flow. And they cut off all the waste removed it, cleaned it up, new models, and this one, and JLR became profitable in one year. And it's not a million dollars, it's a billion pounds, loss a billion pounds, you know, gain, you know. And so coming back to this, you know, why and how do you get funded, right? So one is you need to know your market inside out. So your assumptions are not, you know, not theoretical assumptions because your assumptions are your assumptions or my assumptions are my assumptions. But unless I go and drown myself into the market and get to listen from the from the audience, listen and see what they need, why they need, how they need, I will not know what, what it is all about. So that is one part of it. The second part of it is to see that, you know, every business has got its own risk, right? I mean, you have a risk in execution if you don't have the right team. If it's not only the product innovation. So the question is, how do you mitigate all your risks? I mean, what, identify all the risks that you're there, mitigate the risk, and then, you know, funding is not a problem. Every, there's enough and more funding for everybody. But, you know, if you get the right business, right uh, business risk mitigation, I think, you know, funding will be available. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody at Twitter was thinking uh, the business was going to grow into Elon Musk buying it, right? <laughs> but... Um, you know, you think about all these things that you brought up. Uh, it's really fun for me to do this show and to hear similar messages from from people that I don't think know each other. Like, I'm guessing um, you don't spend time with Steve Blank at Stanford University. Do you know Steve? Okay. I don't know. So um, he, he's been a professor for 20 years, got these best-selling books. But before that, he had built eight startups and his last one he sold for $8 billion. Okay. And you guys could like swap places. I mean, he, he is so intense about really, really, really understanding what's going on in your customer life. He's like, everybody thinks they do that. But if you take my class at Stanford, I make you interview a hundred of them. Like not hyperbole, like an actual 100, you know? And he's like, but for my own company, when I was doing, I would interview 300. And you're like, oh, no wonder he built his company to 8 billion. He really was just obsessive about what's going on in their life, what are their real problems, and it's almost like the humility. He's like, he has ideas. They have ideas about what he wants to do for business, but it's like the humility to learn what's actually going on in their life instead of the hubris to say, I already know enough, I don't need to learn more, or something like that. How would you say that better? And I agree with you on this, uh, you know, 200% Jess. The biggest failures in, in, in all this time, you know, the biggest failure that I've seen is that there's no enough homework done on customer, what the customer needs. So if you don't have a product that's built on customer expectations and, and if it's not built by the customer, you're not going to have a customer buy. And so I completely agree with, uh, with that notion that Steve said that this is it. I mean, you need to have your customers drive it. And you look at, you know, look at disruptive models like Uber or, you know, uh, we're talking about, um, you know, Airbnb. They saw a demand in the market and customer dissatisfaction. 
right? So you go into a city and you're waiting for cars and you're not getting taxis or you're sitting, the taxis are there and they're idling over there. I mean, you know, go to London and you see the black taxi. If he's not on a call, he's simply sitting there waiting for a call, right? I mean, that's all uh, idle assets not being utilized. Or, you know, go into a home that's got fair, spare rooms and that, you know, it's not, assets not being utilized and customers are looking for a cheaper, better model. So if you're able to figure out from your customers, what is it, what is a customer dissatisfaction? You'll find a solution anywhere. And, you know, and it does not only mean, um, you know, profit-making models. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, that, you know, I've been working with a multiple organization on the social side to see the impact on a platonic model where you're doing it, but you know, the impact is far more superior and on, on the social media side. On the social side, so that the rural people who can't afford healthcare or people who cannot afford education, they can actually you know, get educated or get healthcare. Okay, I want to look at the other side of this now. We talked about companies raising money from funds. Um, uh, let's talk about funds and how they get their limited partners. So your $7 billion, is that mostly from institutions or do you do high net worth as well? Or who, who do you raise, raise from? So, so we have got uh, you know, high, net, high net worth as well. And then we have invested early on. Uh, so we have got our residual uh, you know, exits that we have had. Um, that's uh, cleared up. So, so that's how we look at it because you know there are two ways to look at it. Either you go public and go after you know limited partners and GPs uh, and all that. So, if you do that, then you're coming under CC and everything. Or if you want to have a private uh, freedom where you control your funds, where you know where you want to invest, what are good opportunities? Then you know you have to manage you, you know your own money. And and are your investors global or mostly U.S.? You're in Chicago, right? No, global, global. Pretty global. And, and where did you grow up? So I grew up in India. I studied in a school in Uti. So Uti is known as a hill station in India. So, so it was a 120 years old school run by the Petition Brothers, the Irish Brothers, uh, who had set up a base in India. So they ran about five, six schools, and I was in one of them. So that's where I grew up. And then I... I came down to UK for further education and then to the US. So uh, for people not as familiar with India, what part of the country is this? North, south, east, west? Where? South, south, south. This is south. South okay. India is, this is known as uh, Kunur, but everybody knows as Uti as a hill station in South India. So that's where uh, most of the boarding schools were set up by the British uh, in order to make this. Because the climate is much more chiller like the kingdom. Uh, rather than the hot and uh, uh, humid Indian weather. So um, I, I've got to have such great Indian entrepreneurs on this show. I've been thinking about, uh, like, you know, all these guys, you know, zero to billion. And um, do you know the author Ram Sharan, who yeah. has written like 30 yeah. books and whatever, you know, like, yeah. and uh, I'm like, I keep thinking, I need to write a book. I'm just going to, I'm just going to transcribe all of your guys' interviews. And they're just going to call the book like My Favorite Indians or something like that. Or like, just call the book, Ama you know, Amazing Indians or something like this. Because uh, it is fascinating, like what just incredible entrepreneurs um, come out of your country. It's also very interesting just that you mentioned this because you see, in India, we are taught to survive. Okay. It's a billion people. You have to excel in everything right from the time you you start breathing. Okay, <laughs> so you know, you're in grade one and grade two and grade five and everywhere you are taught, you know, taught to avoid be number one, be number one. You know, you have to do this. You have to do this. You have to be number one. You know? So when I was growing up, I was an athlete. I was, you know, getting awards there. I got into dramatics, into debating. I was thing that I got into into my school life, and I like was the best in the district for my bio and math and all that stuff. We are taught on survival. So when I was speaking in another function, and people said, "Hey, George, how is it that Microsoft has an Indian?" And you know, Google has an Indian, and I'm seeing Indians in top positions, and you know now UK has an Indian coming up, and you know, so why are you guys going everywhere? And you know, Canada, you look at it, you know, top politicians are Indians, and top people are Indians. 
And I said, the only thing is, you're taught to survive. You're taught that, you know, there is no resting. You need to put in your best and the best and the best and the best and keep going at it. You just cannot stop and say, okay, now let me just relax and, you know, whatever it is. Okay, well, if I ever write the book, oh, you'll have to consult when we when we transcribe your article. You'll have to consult and make sure we get it right. Yes, 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 of course. And, you know, I think a book where you can write about experiences of wisdom from Indian entrepreneurs, right, uh, for entrepreneurship. So yeah. you, and you could have 100 of these topics picked up or 50 uh, key wisdom areas. And, you know, everyone will have their own story of why, what is important. You know, that would be a hot seller because you know what? Every entrepreneur is looking for the next key things that they're missing out. And they see that one page uh, advice on everybody on one particular topic from somebody who has proved it and, you know, um, you know cross the across the lane, the other side, right? So if you can show that, then I think that's a great uh, way. Yeah. And and what were some of the businesses that you had exited previously that, that helped grow the fund? Yeah, so um, uh, we were in an uh, oil and gas um, business in Indonesia that was doing very well. So we went in at 50 million and, you know, we exited at about 800 and odd million. So that was uh, a significant ex exit. Then there was another uh, company uh, in uh, the uh, food space where we went in very low and then we exited out. We went in less than 2 million. <laughs> And we walked out with almost uh, more than a billion dollars. So th those are wow. some of the And even now, the uh, cancer care company known as Oncodynamics that we are looking at, I think that company is going to be a $100 billion enterprise. Really? Uh, yeah, because you see, cancer today, nobody knows how we are going to cure cancer, right? Uh, if anybody gets cancer, the probability of living is only 30%. Okay. I mean, probability of you know, getting rid of the cancer is 30%. And so 70% failure rate is there in cancer. And in, say, breast cancer, if your early detection is 50%, but even it's only 50%. This particular company has been able to analyze and see what drug actually works for what patient. So... If you go to a cancer hospital today, Jess, any cancer hospital today, and the way they treat, say, if, I, if anybody gets, say, lung cancer or breast cancer, they will say that, listen, this is the protocol. We give you drug one and drug two. If it doesn't work in four months, we will change the drug and we'll put you on drug three and drug four. And in four, another six months, if it doesn't work. So in two years, you have gone through you know, a series of chemotherapy, radiation therapy and drugs, and then, you know, it's it's a hit and trial. It's a hit and go. There's no, then nobody's going to tell you, if you take this drug, your cancer is going to be out. This company says, listen, we need to analyze your tissue, cancer, malignant tissue. They are, and put it on a human genomics, and they come back saying that, if you take this drug that is FDA approved, okay, you will be cured by 90%. They don't claim 100% because they don't want to get sued. They say they say that it's 90%. But what, what, then actually, it was like, has this one launched already? About to get launched. They have already done the trial phases. They have, you know, patients are you know coming inside, major hospitals are signing up, and the doctors are uh, thing. And, you know, I'm the second largest investor in that particular firm. Yeah. Are you allowed to tell us the name of that company? Yes, uh, it's known as Encore Dynamics. Um, Encore Dynamics? Is that? Yeah. Uh, Encore Dynamics, yeah. Okay. Um, and sh if people want to learn more about that, just go to the website or where's the best place to learn yeah, more about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, you know, put it on the website and you get to see. And, you know, so anybody who's suffering from cancer or you know anybody who's, you know, friend, family, anybody, you know, stop the guessing work. Just get, you know, speak to these guys and get them the tissue sample, and they'll tell you what medication to be done. And, uh, you know, you within three months, four months, maximum four months, you'll see the cancer cell actually die. Now, the big challenge was just when I met that company, uh, you know, early on, then that I realized uh, this company, if it's getting if they get it right, this is a game changer. I mean, 
I told these, the scientists there, I told them, listen, you guys are going to win the Nobel Prize for, for this because, you know, you're changing the way uh, cancer is being looked at because 17 million people die out of cancer. One seven, right? It's not a small joke, right? So uh, how do you solve this? And if you're able to solve this, then, you know, you're the holy grail of medical thing of, you know, yes. so, and so that company is, is poised to grow. And uh, one of my biggest challenges today is to see how do I replicate this model in 150 countries, get hospitals sign up, local country, all that, all that where the planning is going on right now. So um, I want to go back previous. Did you say it was a food company that you put in two million and grew it over a billion? Wh which company is that? Yeah, so it is known as uh, Sugar Life. So, you know, they, they, uh, we sold it to one of the pretty largest multinational and confidential things are there that we are not yeah they they want to launch it on their own and, and, things. and what were the main product what were the main products or what was the we are taking a sugar uh, from um, normal sugar right so there's a process of reducing the calorie intake of the sugar hmm. by reducing the glucose and low gi sugar so and you're using some you know natural uh, fluids I think essences or something like ginger juice and everything. You know, compound is not being told, but uh, so you reduce the calorie intake of sugar by almost 50, 60%. So, and potential is so huge that you go to mass chocolate and imagine getting a chocolate that's got, you know, only 40% calorie intake and you know, the impact of that or go to Nestle yeah. or all these companies. Uh, so it's one of these big companies <laughs> How long ago did you guys sell that one? About uh, two years back. Two years back. So uh, I would love to hear some stories that kind of like zero to billion. I know it's like two million to billion, but like this kind of like zero to billion story. What what kind of lessons, having having watched that experience and been through it, what kind of ideas do you have for other entrepreneurs who want who want to do something like that? Uh, my, uh, you know, so there is no magic wand. I mean, there's nothing. That's why, you know, disruption is key, right? Or things. So if you're looking at disruption, you know, there are several things that you look at. One is, can it have a global impact? Okay. So that's why we are looking at, you know, startups who have global impact that can work. So Onco Dynamics is one of them. I told you it's got a global impact. So if your business idea has something that has a global impact, whether it is in the food industry, whether it is in the education industry, whether it is in um, one of the another companies that I know doing very well is Mind Valley. So they are building themselves like uh, how Jeff Bezos did the Amazon, right? So Amazon is the whole portal of the consumer space, but on the education space and self-learning space and everything, he's building the whole portal at Mind Valley. And getting you know promoters and educationalists and people who are trying to do come there educated and then telling them to become self coaches. So I can see that you know disrupting into a huge potential by itself. But coming back to this uh, this uh, how do you grow from zero to a billion dollars? Um, focus is on maximizing your customer base. Okay. Keep it cheap. So like what, yeah, what did that look like at the food company? Yeah, so the pricing of, of that particular product, you know, we just, you know, said that let's keep it more than 20% more than the regular sugar, okay? Yeah, if you if you try to, you know, make it too too costly, then people are not going to buy. And then we said, you know what? As long as this profit, just make it, you know, 10% more than regular sugar, right? And people are just going to just, you know, say, hey, you know what, this is a healthy sugar. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And let's promote it. Right. So that's that's the way to, you know, look at it. And so as I said, don't focus on profit, focus on growth. Okay. Focus on getting the first thousand customers, first a million customer, first, you know, thing. So if you focus on that, then the business model automatically evolves. Because somebody who's going to come and, you know, take you to a multi-billion dollars may not be looking at your product. Over here, they're looking at, oh, you know what? I'm running a fifty billion dollar food company and I see this as a major impact for me to you know to grow my entire food business which will change and I have a market leadership 
And here, you know what? Take two million or two billion or three billion, you know, for it because you know this is it. So those are things that you will learn early on is that focus on growth, focus are not on profits. Don't focus on profits at all because if you're focusing on profits, then miss the growth. Then look at a global model where you can replicate the model at a global level. Your customers in multiple countries. So, and which country did you guys launch this in? Uh, we launched this in uh, India and then we launched it in South Asia, Australia, uh, South Africa and all. And, and how many years from when you put the 2 million into the billion plus exit, how many years was that? Um, five. Five. Yeah, that's incredible. Congratulations, by the way. Um, so when you, when you're building it for intentionally, you know, can this scale globally? Like you, like from the bit, you know, you're, you're designing it with that in mind. Um, what is, what did that look like? What, like, what did you do with the sugar company that, uh, maybe if you were just going to be an India only company, you wouldn't have done? Yeah, so when the initial promoters we were speaking with, right? Uh, you know, so we were speaking with one promoter and then a second promoter. So they were looking at, you know what? Okay, I'm just looking to scale this to, you know, 10 million, 20 million. Uh, because mentally you're thinking in those terms, right? I mean, you've not seen the world and the potential and the scale and the opportunity. You're thinking this is the thing. But uh, that's where we, uh, when I look into a project or when I look into something, uh, we early on we dive in and say, you know what, where is the maximum impact on this? Who are the ultimate beneficiaries and who can actually you know, buy into it? And how do we take this forward? And so we look at that model and then we try taking it to the next level. So for example, in, uh, in Africa, there's a company uh, that's on disruptive education. I mean, so they take a space with the um, entire children who are off time, I mean, after school, after hours. So all the children are into games and social things, not into activities. So they have now you know, focused their energies on our post-school hours. How do we encourage children to have positive the games or activities and, and education based rather than spending time. And parents are happy because they're investing on the children. And that company has grown and leaps and bounds. And we are now looking at how do we take that company into multiple countries across the world. Okay. And that's what I want to ask you about. So, um, so at, at Grace Oak Networks, you know, we don't just do my show. We were talking before about we make shows for very large media companies and then for different CEOs who make their show. So, one of our clients who we're making a show for right now, he built uh, his his pillow company from zero to 100 million in like two years. And they've had all these conversations about, um, they've had all the conversations about new products and innovations. And he's like, why? why? Like, no, we, we've got this wrong. Everybody in Italy sleeps as well. Everybody, you know, all across the world uses pillows. Like, why are we so worried about innovating within the U.S.? Why aren't we selling our product that works so, so well here? Why aren't we selling it globally? So we were having this conversation last week. So my question for you, so that's, you know, as he's thinking through that, what kind of advice do you have for, let's take specifically like U.S. or Canadian entrepreneurs. What do we often not understand about going, going global? Something's working here and we want to we wanna start expanding to other countries. What, what do we miss? And this, uh, Jess, is one of my favorite uh, areas because I'm, you know, often every time when I sit and dine lunch or dinner with, uh, you know, CEO friends, they all have successful business and they have no clue on how they can take it. So one of the things that, there are a couple of things. One is uh, you, if you're going to any country to launch your product, which is working very well, say, for the U.S. market, you need local customization. If you don't customize it locally, it will take off, but then it will not, you know, fly. All right. So you go through the curve and then, you know, it stagnates out there and then you see a dip or, or a stagnant thing. But if you want to solve the skies, you can launch out with what you have, but you have to innovate and customize locally. Because when you innovate locally, the local consumer knows, oh, man, they came here. This is made for me, for my 
the way I sleep and my sizes, my it's not big. For example, when Mercedes-Benz went to India to launch their car, right? So the in Germany, the roads are you know so uh, so well done. So you don't need uh, you know huge uh, suspension suspensions and the high race and all the stuff. You come to a country like India, you know you. It's, it's juttering on the road and the bottom side is hitting the road, you know. So you can't run, you can run the car, but you need to customize it. You need to just, you know, raise the suspension, just raise the height of the car a little bit so that, you know, even if it just goes over a bump, it doesn't scrape the bottom, things that, right? So, but the minute they customized it, they started selling more cars locally. But till the time they were not customizing it, the local competition said, Look at those cars. What's the point of, you know, having a luxury car that's bumping and scraping the road on the bottom, you know, every time you want to go or, you know, to your village or rural town? It doesn't make sense. So first is customization. So you need to customize your product for the local market. Okay. Second, biggest thing is get somebody from the local market who's your head of operation. He knows the culture, he knows the people, he knows the relationship, he knows everything. Bring him as a partner of the company at that level, make 5-10%, sweat equity, does not matter. What matters is, as I told you in the beginning, you are going to scale, look at global growth, and look at number of things. Don't look at the profit over there. Just look at, you know, okay, I give 10% equity, get some local guy. Get somebody who's run a similar business and builds it up. Because the biggest mistakes that we all make while we are going global is that, oh man, I know it, I have done it, and you know, it's, it's a repl replica. No, it's not a replica. You, you need a local hand who will tell you, in Colombia, this is the way it is done. All right? In South Africa, this is the way it's done. And in India, this is the way it's done. In Thailand, this is the way it's done. And you know, you come down to Australia, and you're like, hey guys, you know, here's it, mate. This is the way it's done over here. You don't budge in. You don't do this. You know, this is it. So you need local partnership. You need to customize your local product, right? And then you, when you choose an advertising company for your product, don't use your U.S. advertising company. You know, I always tell them, listen, you have to get a local firm to do it because a local firm could be a partner of a U.S. firm. And also, I mean, I could keep going on. But always, I again tell everybody, before you get in, make sure you know the way to get out. Okay? So don't get into any country without knowing how you're going to get out. Because otherwise, you're going to be stuck. In, I've been stuck in situations before uh, where I could not get out. And so I make it a point whether I'm doing business in Indonesia or Thailand or Burma or you know, uh, Tanzania or Botswana or Uganda for that matter or Paraguay or Rugby, I make sure that if I do something, I know how to get out. Uh, what's an example of how to get out? When you're writing your contracts, you need to make sure, if at all, you're going to get out. You're not going to get stuck in, in a legal country or the local place. So I always keep my arbitration in Singapore or in London or in Switzerland. I don't keep anything else. It is whatever is my contract, however... Beautiful it is. How we're encouraging. How we're best it is. How great I know the other side. You know, the entrepreneur on the other side. He's my best friend, Chummy. I always say, listen. First thing, this is something that's that's not negotiable. I need to have the arbitration outside, outside the country that's in operation. So that's very very critical. Second is, uh, you could get stuck in the country's uh, you know tax issues. And you could get into penalties and you could be, I mean, you could land up in a situation where you, you, you don't even get out of the country. Okay. Uh, you know, they can simply slap something on you and nothing. So I always make it a point that whatever happens, make sure that you don't get into any, any legal liability uh, in terms with the government of the country. You know, if you have to pay something more, pay that. Don't try any shortcuts. Don't do anything out there. Because you need to make sure, you never know, you go into Venezuela for a, a meeting and, you know, if you're not going out, then, you know, you can understand the anxiety of your family, of your relationships, of your partnerships, everything, all that's a mess, right? So you're trying to see all that uh, thing. So those are things, uh, early on, I keep telling everybody, if you want to get in, make sure also you know how to get your money out. 
Okay. And once I, I was in Malaysia and uh, I invested 30 million there uh, with the company. And after the investment, this particular gentleman told me, listen, I'm done with you guys, George. You go do what you want. I'm just not going to do this forward. And I said, what do you mean? You have our money. We have contracts. He said, your money's with me now. Now I am the king. I don't care. You can write it off, do whatever you want. And if you try to, you know, play foul with me, uh, I'll probably file a uh, international case that you came to murder one of my staff or one of us. Now, who wants to get into trouble like that? Right. So you have to make sure that you also have provisions to make sure that in case something goes wrong with your investment, what's the best possible recovery for you to come on? You would, if everything is good, for whatever is good, you need to make sure, especially when you're traveling, because doing business in the U.S. is far different from business in developing countries where rules are tepid, regulations are watery and wafery, and everything is sometimes based on graft, which you can't do. So you just can't go and do something to get something out. So be careful when you're trying to go into those countries and see how to do business. I know I'm harping on the, on the uh, food company. What's an example of taking those principles? When you, when you move from India and you start going to these other countries, what, what's an example of something like that that was done? So uh, very simple. I look for an anchor in, in, a, in a second country or a third country. Or somebody in the food space who's, in the, uh, who's an anchor who has done something very similar. I start the conversations early on and say, listen, uh, if he's running a company, I say, listen, can you become a partner with, uh, as a joint venture partner or a strategic alliance partner or head of operations in this country so you can run it? So that's the easiest way uh, for somebody to replicate a model into multiple countries. And you're focusing on the first 10 countries. So you don't look at you know growing one country because you know, you're trying to grow one country and that takes a three-year learning curve. Okay, and then you want to replicate that in another two more countries, and that you know that becomes another you know time. But you so you lost a significant amount of time. You have to look at how do I look at ten different countries at the same time, and how was the easiest way for me. And I'm not looking at the maximizing my profits out. Even if I have a little bit of equity coming inside, my terminal value is going, my entire business value is going up because I'm present in multiple countries. Let them make money. I don't care. You know, so volume drives valuation up. When you think about a lot of us who, it, it feels so foreign. It's like, how do you even get comfortable with that? And, and how do we even find the person like that in the next country? And, and all like the, the what ifs, because, you know, humans are scared of the unknown, right? Um, what kind of advice do you have? Entrepreneur, maybe the, the business is going great in Canada or the States or the UK, and they want to look at countries that feel a little further away or something like this, or, or maybe you don't recommend that. What, what do you recommend when, you, when, they, when they're starting to branch out and they're saying, okay, we're willing to learn a new skill set. We want to play this game. What's the, what's the baby steps? The baby steps would be, uh, you know, first is look at about eight to 10 countries where you can actually sell your product. For example, you said the pillow company. Yeah. Uh, you look at, you know, the 10 similar countries, similar to the U.S. that easy for you to, the culture, the people and everything. So that's the first mapping up. So we call, I call this as, you know, a global customer map. So you map your global customer base uh, in terms of volume, in terms of size, in terms of uh, revenue streams, in terms of, you know, growth, I mean, multiple global customer map. Once you do that, then you will say that, okay, listen, these are my top five priority countries. And now who's my best possible partner? Now, you can't do it on your own because you're so focused on the business. You would probably uh, hire somebody who is an expert who launching global markets, bring them on board, and they will go and come back with the homework of, you know, this is the right partner for this country, this is the partner. They will reach out to them saying that we have a proposal for you. Do you want to get in, in or out? And if they say, yes, okay, fine. Come it is boys. So. Well, uh, there's so many things that we didn't get to talk about today. Uh, let, let's cover a couple of them be, before we run out of time. What are a couple of other uh, of the exciting things you're working on? So, um, as I told you, um, this uh, children are a uh, major 
area for me. So, uh, you know, I look for, uh, you know, saving and educating them. So I invest a lot of my spare time uh, supporting education uh, for the children. So if there's anybody who needs education, especially in countries like Africa and all that, the cost of education is probably $100 a year. But, you know, if they, they need access to it, so I do a lot of uh, charity work there. I uh, set up a program to help widows get self-trained from rural India and also in Africa. So if right now what happens is if a widow, I mean, if in the rural areas, if a lady dies, the husband dies, the lady is unskilled and there is no remedy for the child, for the family. So a 30, 35-year-old lady and, you know, traditionally they don't go and get a second marriage. Because the cultures that they start living on their own and they don't go to second level. Now the child who was going to school now has no income and become labor in somebody else's family. So what we did was we said, you know, why don't we try and get these ladies and reskill them and train them on stitching or tailoring or weaving or something. And then we said, okay, why don't we buy their products and resell those products for them? Because they know how to send the products. Even if they make a shawl, they will sell it. They're not uh, salespeople. So, so we put that, we got that going. So we gave them a revenue for them to look after themselves, look after their families. And then what profits are coming from that particular initiative are going to fund more ladies into the skills program and this thing. So, uh, what, what is that we, one called? Uh, that's called the Asha Care. So there's more than about 200 odd those that we are supporting right now and will entire thing forward. So I received an Oxford University Alumni Award for for that initiative because it's a self-generated initiative for for that particular thing. So, well, that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, what a high impact thing to do, not just for the individual but for the whole family. Yeah. All right. Try. 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 So those are innovations that I'm looking at. Uh, there's also on the healthcare that we did uh, with uh, with some other uh, rural healthcare that I did. So traditionally, a rural village that you go, you don't have a primary doctor. You don't have. So if a child is going to be born in a village, they the children have. I mean, family scrape all the money, borrow money from money lenders at twenty one percent interest, and you. They go to a city urban area to give childbirth in a private hospital because they want to do this thing. So the child comes back. Now the family's in debt, you know, for the next 10 years, paying off this money that they have borrowed for this, you know, childbirth. So when this was brought to my attention, one of the discussions, I said, you know, hang on a second. Why don't we train people in the village to be midwives who can give, you know, birth in the village itself? Instead of going to a private nursing, giving birth is not something so complicated. I mean, people do it at home, and that's how it was done. So we got put an initiative, got one of the local NGOs, and we brought the village people together, and we set up a a midwife training section, trained them, and made all the pregnant ladies come into a pool fund, so they put a small money that they can withdraw at the time of the birth. So they don't have to go for any additional funding from anywhere. So it is like a, like the Grameen Bank, a small micro, you know. It may be just a dollar, but that dollar by, you know, 50 ladies coming inside, it's $50. And month on month, it becomes like uh, $600 a year, right? So it, uh, it, it adds value. And that's more than sufficient to give birth to three or four ladies or five ladies. And that becomes a pool. That whole model is being replicated in multiple... Ages right now. Really? What's what's that one called? That's uh, that I did that with Biaf B A I N Biaf. Oh, interesting. Is that just like Biaf.org or something like that? Do you think? Yeah, I I like to get. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's okay. a, one of the largest NGOs in India. Uh, it's got they got six hundred and fifty villages that they cover, and things. So those are. Uh, so my time is with uh, our. And, Social initiatives, as well as uh, the the commercial side on the, on the private side as well. This is, this has been great. I feel like there's so many questions I didn't get to ask. We're now have to have to have you back on the show, um, but uh, I appreciate you coming on.
Thank you. Thank you, Jess. And I look forward, uh, you know, to come with you uh, along with the CEO of uh, Cancer, the cancer company, Oncodynamics. Yeah, it's going, to, it's so huge. It's so huge. The potential is really, really, really huge on that. Yeah, that's so exciting. So um, if people want to learn more about the fund, what, what's the website? Uh, you can go to alcorfund.com. Alcorfund.com. And, and as far as you, is, should people follow you on LinkedIn or, or any, any other places we should tell people about online? Uh, LinkedIn is good, but I have not marketed myself uh, extensively out. It's, you know, I've just been there where, you know, people have asked me something and I've been responding back. You know, when we launched off, um, our, you know, startup initiative, a couple of videos were made and put on YouTube or whatever it is. But then I'm not actually driven myself out, but I'm happy to answer people in LinkedIn. I mean, I've got more than 200 or 300 messages that are all responded. <laughs> what, what do you think would be fun to leave people with? What, what, what message do you want to leave people today? I would uh, leave, uh, with, uh, leave them with one thing uh, that uh, I've learned in all of this. Okay. Well, two things I would say. First is, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to have only two qualities that makes a difference. One is focus. Second is tenacity. If you don't have focus and you're focusing on 10 different items, you're not going to make it. And if you don't have tenacity, you're not going to make it. So, for example, when I say tenacity, we all know Starbucks, Howard Schultz, right? When he wanted to raise the one and a half million dollars to start his first, he ran out of every investor in his hometown. His wife felt pity for him and said, let's go to my, my town. So, when he stayed with his in-laws and went after people, he only wanted one and a half million dollars. But then he went to more than 270 investors before he got 50% of what he wanted. And by the time he got the balance money, it was 283rd investor. Only one and a half million dollars. 80% of his company was there. That is tenacity. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, thanks everybody for listening and uh, stay tuned. We're going to have George back on the show. All right. Thank you. Bye now.